You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Well, shepherds were the first non-family members to get the call, the birth announcement. They were at work on a hillside when one angel shows up with the news. Luke records the scene around their firsthand testimony. He did it this way. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and then a whole choir suddenly shows up singing, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those with whom his favor rests. An announcement of this magnitude would not have been complete without special lighting and a host of backup singers. It's been estimated that three wise men from the east traveled more than 9,000 miles over two and a half years to find Jesus. Their guidance, one star. In this case, the light wasn't a special effect. It was, in fact, the announcement. There are estimated 2 trillion billion galaxies consisting of 200 billion trillion stars. Our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, has an estimated 100,000 million stars. So the wise men's star must have been especially luminous to stand out in so many. Unless you think they might have seen that one star by chance, we read this in Psalm 147. God determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name and apparently assigns them some specific tasks along the way. Light shows weren't the only phenomenon that the wise men and the shepherds shared together because they also shared a dark experience. I mean, when when you read the passage out of Luke, the the shepherds' angelic encounter happened at night. The, The record says they were keeping watch of their flocks by by night. Now, the wise men, you can't see a star during the daytime. You can only see a star at night. And so this makes darkness the official setting of the public announcements of the birth of Christ. However, this wouldn't be the first dark setting in which light would burst forth. For that, you have to go all the way back to the beginning to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that creative act established darkness as a setting and not a settled situation. A setting, but not a settled situation. And as I've been accustomed to saying lately at Gateway is nothing is over until God says it's over. But when he says it's over, it's over. Even darkness. The book of Isaiah is rich in prophecies about the Messiah. This one of particular merit, Isaiah 61 through 3. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people's But 
But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Darkness and heaviness described, it was the context of Israel's writing. It was a a real-time physical and spiritual condition. But this prophecy said that darkness would not and could not stop the the Lord's rising or his glory appearing, or in other words, his, his light to come. In response to this slam dunk promise, Isaiah begins that prophecy by saying, rise and shine. In essence, he's saying, don't wait until all the darkness is gone. The promise of Christ is enough. And in fact, I think for all of us, if we wait, if we wait until the promises are all fulfilled completely, we miss out on a whole lot of joy in the interim. Do what Isaiah is imploring you to do. Rise and shine. The presence of light does not refute the reality of darkness. Make no doubt about it, darkness is real, and it's heavy, and no one is exempt from darkness. The word darkness appears about 40 times in what's known as the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. This is um, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Job, and the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Over, or just around 40 times darkness is mentioned, and each time darkness is mentioned, it talks about heaviness. It talks about depression. The context is one of of unwise decision, warranting circumstances that are hard, even representing evil. And yet in the context, the same context of those five books, light is mentioned over twice as many times. And Psalm 30b makes this even more poignant. It makes a salient point regarding the reality of darkness, but the restorative power of light. And in this David writes, weeping may stay for the night. So, so it's, not, it's not even that weeping will, will necessarily happen in darkness. But weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Rejoicing comes with the first light. So the presence of light does not refute darkness as power, but it refuses to let darkness have the last word. And in fact, darkness can't have the last word. In fact, it never even had the first word. And this is where we get John's description. John 1 through 5, 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. So you get the context. Before there ever was even dark, there was Christ. And so darkness then gets created. It's it's a part of the creation of God, and yet it was created with this one physical limitation built into the very heart of the DNA of darkness, if you can think about it that way, is that every time light shows up, it has to go away, built into its own creative DNA. Each gospel is unique on how it um, walks us through and kind of tells the story of the birth of Jesus. John, in and of itself, is even more unique. John is is very light on the the who, what, when, where. You don't don't get a lot of who, what, when, where. But you get a heavy why and a heavy how. The why, because 
a dark world needs the light of Jesus. He talks through that on John 1. And the crescendo passage of John 1 was verse 14. This is the how. This is how light enters. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son, which means that he can be witnessed. He can be recognized. You can know God. You can recognize his presence. And it says then, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And this is, this is how we experience Christ in a very strategic and a very specific manner that we, we can encounter him in truth and grace. Do you know the truth when you hear it? Have you ever used the expression or heard someone say, well, that just rings true to me? We can experience God in truth. And have you ever had an embrace of grace? One that does not take into account anything other than the fact that you are there present with him. When was the last time you had a hug like that? God in the flesh is in fact the differentiating mark of Christianity. There's no other world religion that has God coming in the flesh to live the same life that we live. There's no other world religion that has their God making himself known in such a tangible touchable, experiential way. There is no other world religion that has their God paying any price, making any type of sacrifice, much less becoming a sacrifice for, the, for their own subjects' sin against them. Only the God of the Bible became flesh and lived among us to experience the same darkness that we do. Jesus had his own wrestling match with darkness and yet darkness never won. His darkness included rejection and loss. What about your darkness? His darkness included physical pain and emotional pain. No, no doubt your darkness as well. His darkness included being misunderstood and being doubted. His darkness included face-to-face -face opposition from Satan himself. Maybe the hardest ex experience of darkness that Christ had to go through was the separation from his own father when he hung on the cross. And yet his life, his death, and his resurrection conclusively prove the fact I stated a moment ago. Light always overcomes darkness. Always. Now Jesus doesn't promise his followers they'll avoid darkness, he, but he does assure us of this later on in his book. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The presence of light does not refute darkness has power, but it refuses darkness the last word because it never had the first word. I know how hard certain times in our life can be. I know that there are some of you walking through very special difficult, dark, and heavy times. You may be even watching in the same condition. But can I tell you that you're in the presence of light? You're in the presence of the life of Jesus. Do you sense the truth of these words? Can you feel the warmth of his grace? That's what I've prayed. Luke and Moses and Isaiah and David 
and John, all of these writers called Jesus light. But what did Jesus say about himself? I mean, it would be important to know, was it anything that Jesus embraced, or was this just kind of niceties that someone else dumped on him? And yet, at the, at the end of one of the Jewish feasts, they had three Jewish feasts. Um, well, they had many Jewish feasts. Three were the most significant, where every Jewish man was required to attend. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the, at the end of this feast, Jesus stood up in the courtyard of the temple, and he said these words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And these words kind of dripped with irony. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles was by far the most festive of feasts. Um, it lasted seven full days. There were more sacrifices given during the Feast of Tabernacles than there were the other two major feasts combined. Um, in it, they would, they would light these 40-foot-tall menorahs. Have you ever seen a menorah? About seven different lights in a menorah, and these were 40 feet high. They were so big, in fact, that ladders had to be built into the side because the priests each day would have to climb the ladder to fill them full of oil so that they would light up the night. And each night, these menorahs would be lit. There are historical sources that say the light was so bright that you could see it from outside of the city. The significance of the light, there was twofold. There was a practical element to the light. One was that let the festivities go on after dark. The second was it was representative of the, of the light, the fire that God led Israel out of Egypt and then eventually to the promised land. The, it, the festival came with this uniqueness where that every family, you actually, they, they built a, a tent, if you will, a lean-to outside of their house, and for the seven days, they didn't sleep inside, they slept outside. And it was to be this full, immersed experience of reliving the faithfulness of God in that time. And one, they were celebrating, it was, a, it was harvest time, so there was a celebration of harvest. Oh, but then the underlying ring was there, it was a celebration of what God had done in delivering them, and what God would do as he promised in delivering them. And I mean, this was this massive feast of celebration. The, the menorahs were kept in the outer courtyard of the temple. They were kept in what's called the court of women. It was the largest courtyard. Everybody was welcome into that courtyard. But uh, interesting enough, the deeper you went into the temple, the more restricted the access became. And the majority of the people couldn't move past the menorahs or the court of women. So imagine seven days of this kind of celebration every single night, man. These menorahs getting lit and people getting lit probably, right? I mean, it was, it, was, it was a massive, like, we can't wait till that feast comes kind of experience, right? But then it's over. And you can imagine um, how dirty everything was, right? All the, maybe the garbage or the, the paper bill, whatever, all over the city, all over the temple. And people then just kind of winding down from the celebration, and it was in that very moment that Jesus steps up in that temple. And the way I would say it, the way I would interpret him saying it now would be, you think that was light? No, that wasn't light. I'm the light of the world. I mean, think of the irony that he would step into a festival that was meant to point to him, and they never saw him. 
And I think of the irony of a Christmas Eve service that would be celebrated all over our city, all over the country, in fact, all over the world. And it's a celebration filled with, I mean, I made a joke that we didn't sing around a piano, but we did have an old record player, Magnavox. And we would play old, I still have a majority of those old albums. And we would play them over and over again on Christmas. Imagine the irony that we, we go through this, this, um, this ritual year after year and the celebration of Christmas and yet the question always becomes, have we, have we missed the light? Are, are, it, it, are we living in the same irony that they would have been, that Jesus steps into this room tonight and he says, I am the light of the world. I wonder that many times we try to create our own light and our own life. I think about each, each morning at some time when the priest kind of woke up I don't know which division would have been in charge of getting back up those ladders carrying buckets full of oil. But I imagine them going, well, we got another night. So we, don't, we got to fill it up again. And I don't care where you are in this continuum of searching whether or not Christ is real or not, or you've been following Christ for, the while, for a while. You, you know when you're trying to manufacture your own light and own life, when you know I gotta get up and do this again today. I've gotta to talk myself back into this good mood. I've gotta I gotta put a happy face back on. And and when you because listen, when you create your own life, you have to keep stocking your own life. You've got to keep sourcing your own life. You gotta keep sourcing your own light. And if you gotta continually source that to keep that going, that is a clear indication that you have yet to experience the truth and grace of Christ, the true light of the world, the true light that when he shows up, the darkness around it gets pushed out. Darkness has just been created that way. It doesn't have any other choice. It has to relent and move away. I know we would like it to just go away, but it moves away because of the presence in Christ that comes with us, that gets invited when we invite him and he comes next to us you find yourself living in any level of darkness tonight, any level of heaviness tonight, I want to leave you with four things. I've said them interspersed in this brief message. One is that darkness is a setting, not a settled situation. If you are walking through heavy and dark, it is a setting, but man, it was the best setting for the birth announcement of Christ. It became a setting of all of creation, and that's all it is, a setting. Number two, that light had the first word, and it refuses darkness the last word. The darkness in your life does not have to be the last word. Third, there's more light to life than what you can create on your own. You can try, but you can't create the kind of light Christ can. And the last one, rise and shine because this light has come and it's come for everyone. When you cycle back to the beginning of John's gospel, he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. 
That's more than a slogan. It's more than um, a symbol hung in the back of an end zone on championship weekend. It is a proclamation to everyone. There's, there's no special handshakes. Uh, there's no special language. Um, there's, there's no past that's not received when it comes to him. That no one gets excluded out of the invitation. And that when whoever comes, they receive the light of Christ. I had two goals tonight. One was to really kind of challenge this idea of darkness and it's what it feels to be so um, unrelenting. And maybe that's the experience you've had with it, but maybe it's never been cross-examined by what the Word of God says about light. The second was to encourage those who are in what David called in his most famous of Psalms, the the valley of darkness or the valley of the shadow of death to encourage you to rise and shine. Stop burning daylight, worrying about what's going to happen. How is this going to end up when you invite Christ? We're going to light our Advent candle now or the kids are going to flick it on or, or they're going to break the, the usher's going to come, they're going to they're going to come down the center or are going to get to the center. I don't know how exactly they're going to do it now. They're going to light the candle and then light on the ends and you guys will pass the flame down. But as you do that, I want you to think about this when, you're, when your candle is going to be lit. I ask that you either receive that light as a, in a prayer of thanksgiving, of a thank you for this light. But maybe you also need to use it as a prayer of confession and invitation. A simple asking, Lord, light up my life. Push out the darkness. And Father, we thank you for this, kind of our version, if you will, of this 1,500-year-old ritual reminding ourselves that you are the light. And I pray for everyone in this room, watching, even watching at home or wherever they may be watching, Lord, that at the end of 2021, we receive your light and that we would rise and shine in the name of Jesus. Joe. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.